Jeff from Startup Stack with another second on the Startups podcast. In January, Startup Stack Happy Hour returned after a break in December, kicking off our fourth year of Happy Hour events. For this event, we welcomed Zenify co-founder and CEO, Manvir Sandhu. In this podcast episode, Manvir tells the origin story of Zenify and how they've become one of the fastest growing tech startups in the region. Check it out. First of all, thanks, thanks Jeff, for having me here. Um, this is actually the first time I, I spoke at a, at a community like this, so I think it's really awesome that they put this thing together. And I don't know where you guys are as far as your journey, you know, from a startup perspective or where you are in your career, but one of the things I want to do is I want to tell you a little bit about the Zenify story because, you know, the news out there now, when you Google it, it's all awesome. You know, when you get to this part, there's great press. But, you know, how you get from when you start to to where we're at now, there's a lot of trials and tribulations. And I think it puts good context for you for, you know, if you are stuck at a point, whether it's funding or whatever, you're still making decisions on what you want to do. Um, hopefully I can share some insights that, that may inspire you. And, and if you have questions and you're shy about it or whatever, um, I, I'll give my cards out and I'd you know, love to talk to any one of you guys separately, you know, just about kind of how, how everything went down for us. But, you know, the story is really, there's three parts to it. You know, one is kind of the original idea and the vision. Um, and then there's the struggle, which is a big part of it. Um, and then is this, the third part of the story is really what I call finding our way. And that's kind of where we are today. Is we're, we kind of found our way, and now we're, we're progressing from there. So Zenify, um, for those of you guys, I don't know how savvy you are with technology, but at the end of the day, we're a technology company. And the vision and idea behind the firm has always, be, has always been around how do you utilize technology, solutions, and innovations to make an impact, whether that's an impact for a business, but when we started, it was actually an impact for, for nonprofit organizations and healthcare. And I'll t- tell you a little bit about that story. So um, as far as my career, I worked at Hewlett Packard for 18 years. Um, that's a long time. It was my first job out of college. I'm a very loyal guy. Um, if you read up on my bio, I played football you know, throughout my career and in college. And my, my senior year, I had an injury, and I kind of had to do the J-O-B thing and figure out what I was going to do. And that's when I kind of discovered Hewlett Packard was hiring. I had, a, I had a finance and accounting undergrad. I was pretty good at it. I liked it. And they had some openings, and that's the gig I got, and that's where I started. I didn't know I was going to be there for 18 years. I don't know how I was there for 18 years, but that's what happened, right? And part of it is, you know, you, you start out with a firm, and, you know, a firm like HP has got a great history, great founder story, great culture, all about innovation, and they lose their way over time. And then when they lose their way, you lose your way. Because at that point, you know, you're, you're kind of stuck. And I had moved here from Sunnyvale here to Sacramento and Roseville. And one thing that happens when you, when you move here initially, and this would have been like six years ago, and you've got a home and you've got a mortgage, you've got a family, you kind of feel like you're stuck, right? Like, holy cow, what am I going to do now that, you know, I'm here? And I felt like this is the only company that I'll ever work for, and I need to just stay with them and retire and keep my mouth shut. And that was the problem. I couldn't keep my mouth shut. Um, I'm kind of a disruptive guy. I like innovation, and the firm I was working for stopped innovating. And so then I was up against you know, a real challenge. I will credit Hewlett Packard for this. Um, 
aside from some great relationships I made, they did introduce me to technology and the technology that we leverage today to drive our business. And I'll tell you a little bit about that story. Um, so at the time, you know, it was it was probably around two or two thousand or so um, is when Hewlett Packard was going through a big change. We were moving from Siebel CRM to Salesforce CRM, and that was a big move, and I didn't know a ton about CRM, but I was drawn to it. I love the idea of leveraging uh, data and technology to understand customer behavior and customer insights. So I was always drawn to that concept from the very beginning. And I fell in love with Salesforce. I thought it was amazing. You know, I thought it, I was it being introduced to the cloud, mobile technology. Even though Hewlett Packard was missing all these major trends, um, I was getting exposure to it through internal projects that we were doing. And things went well enough that eventually I got a, a promotion to run a chunk of business. It was about a $100 million chunk of business where we were focused on healthcare and education. And the first thing I had asked my VP at the time was, man, what, you know, will I get access to Salesforce? Can I get access to the keys? Can I you know, actually have my own instance and do my own things? Because I knew I had a small team and a small budget to drive that business. And somehow I was able to do that and get that access. And that was huge because that's when I started to really learn how you could leverage technology to you know, drive business. And we were super excited about it. Things were going really well. My, my boss at the time, Suresh Subramanian, he had made a lot of money at Gateway Computer, retired, started a nonprofit in Kenya, and then came back to HP. And so his idea was, you know, at the time it seemed crazy. It was like, all this technology we have at HP, we should be using it to solve, you know, world problems. And so he went to HP Philanthropy, and he said, why can't I just take a group of us? There's this crazy problem around infant HIV in Kenya. What if I took some volunteers, connected them with some folks there, and then they solved some problems? What do you guys think? Because all HP was doing was donating, you know, donating money, writing checks, and shipping boxes. So we volunteered, uh, myself and my business partner, Nathan Mueller. And it was a really like, you know, life-changing, altering experience for us because we got to see firsthand you know, what third-world health problems were really like. You know, in the case of Nairobi, you still have you know, kids born with AIDS because their mothers have AIDS. And you know, the detection process, the ability to get them the right medicine uh, to solve this problem is very complicated. It was a major supply chain problem. We were able to spend enough time out there to figure out how to sort of diagnose the root causes and more importantly, come up with a solution. HP had a very small role in this. So we came up with this concept of IoT, IoT device, leveraging an HP printer. We built in a 3G uh, component to it so that it could talk to the cloud. The cloud was Salesforce. So we spun it as an HP solution. HP Philanthropy loved it. Super successful, we deployed it, fantastic. So we thought, wow, you know, this is great. You know, and this is, this is the kind of stuff we can do at HP now. You know, I can take it back to my healthcare business. Again, HP stopped innovating. So we were running up against walls and we had built relationships through that process in Kenya with UNICEF and the CDC. And they were like, you know, you guys did great. You know, we have an even bigger problem. Uh, in Haiti, and in, in Haiti at the time of the earthquake back in 2010, you know, and this would have been around 2012, they still had major infrastructure damage from the earthquake. It was an 8.0 earthquake, you know, major water, power outages, all kinds of issues. There was a, a major disease outbreak, and so they had a problem around vaccines and vaccine spoilage. 
And so I went to my boss again and go, hey, there's this problem in Haiti now. You know, you think HP philanthropy will want to get involved? And so initially they were like, sure, you know, go, go you know, check it out. So we, we spent a little bit of time out there in, in Haiti, and we realized it was a much bigger problem than we had originally anticipated. They were estimating that 30% of the vaccines had issues. Well, based on the audit and the test, test that we ran, it was more like 50%. And so these are vaccines that are spoiling, they're administering bad vaccines to people, so it's really not, it's not doing anything for people, right? And they're spending millions of dollars. So we were like, this is a major problem. We spent three weeks out there. I took time off you know, from work, and my business partner and I and my other business partner, we, cons- you know, we came up with a solution. We knew that at the time of that earthquake, Salesforce had donated free licenses for 10 years. And a Salesforce license goes for $120 per user per person. So Haiti's sitting on these licenses. They don't know what to do with them. We know they're there. We know how powerful they are. And we know that if we could connect one of these vaccine refrigerators to the telco network via the cloud, we could solve this problem. But we didn't necessarily have the funding. So we thought HP would be supportive of this, even though HP wouldn't have a big part of this solution. And it turned out we were wrong. You know, they basically told us, hey, guy, hey guys, gigs up. You know, this is just, there's really not an HP component to this, so you guys you know, are going to have to get back to your day job. Not that we stopped doing our day job, but it's just that's kind of where we were. So we were either in a position to solve this problem, right, save lives, or go back to our day jobs and go, sorry guys, we can't help. And we knew that there wasn't gonna be anybody to jump in and solve this problem. So we created a nonprofit. Uh, this was the start of Zenify. So this is 2013, 2012. So we started our firm at that point and we came up with the idea of doing a proof of concept. So we didn't have the money to do a full-blown scale, scaled out infrastructure project, but we'll do a POC. If the POC is successful, and it's picked up by a medical journal and other press, then it'll get the momentum to get more funding to actually solve the problem nationwide and maybe even internationally. And it's exactly what we did, is we sort of took our own time, our own sweat equity, our own engineering, our own kind of innovative ways. We had a a sensor developed similar to that sensor we had on the printer, and it's a sensor that would detect uh, when a fridge was out of temperature compliance, and it would send an alert to the Ministry of Health workers the minute a refrigerator was out of whack so they could go triage it, determine what's wrong, fix it, and you'd have kind of a real-time solution. So the POC worked. It was successful. It got published in a medical journal. Salesforce, which is a big part of the solution, loved it. Absolutely loved it. So loved it so much that they're like, hey, we'd love to have you up on the main stage and speak. So we spoke right before Al Gore spoke you know, at Dreamforce in 2013, which is a very, very big conference. Unfortunately, in the audience were our friends at Hewlett Packard, and they did not like that we were doing this. And the person that eventually fired me, right, I remember when I first met him, he was like, what happens at a crappy company over time is you have like a couple of, you have a bad leader, and then you have another bad leader, and then you have another bad leader, and another bad leader, and you start to figure it out, like wow, these guys, they're survivors, right? That's what they are, they're survivors. They know how to manage up, they know how to do all these things to stay alive when a company like Hewlett Packard is laying off thousands and thousands of people. And so that's what I ended up having, is people like that. I remember when I shook hands and met the guy that was gonna fire me, I looked at him and I was like, you don't like me. 
I, I knew it right away. I'm like, you do not, something, there's something here, you're not liking me. And so we're up on the stage, we're doing this whole thing, and there he is. And I look at him, I go, oh shit. <laughs> right? And it's exactly what ended up happening is um, after 18 years, I got fired. Um, you know, no pension, or not pension, but no uh, anything. It was like, there's the door, you're gone, kind of thing. And so now you're in a like tough spot. You got three kids, you got mortgage, you know, what are you gonna do? Right? You got this great idea, this great vision, you're excited, you've got success, you've got people backing you, behind you, going, hey guys, you guys should take what you're doing, take it to the next level. We don't have any money. But we decided to go at it anyway. So we, you know, we're kind of like, let's just go for it. You know, let's just see what happens. And so I've got money saved up, moved from Sunnyvale to Roseville, right? Not very uh, extravagant guy. I'm driving the same car. I've been driving forever, living in the same house I've lived in forever. So we stashed some money, right, over time. I had my 401k, which I knew I could tap into. Not a good idea. Your advisor tells you not to do it, but I knew it was all these things were there. And these things just give you confidence to go, okay, well, let's go for it. Let's see how long we can kind of go. Maybe we can eke out a year. And that's what we did. So for a year, you know, we, we continued to try to solve some of these problems. And the problem with healthcare as an industry in general is that there's a lot of red tape, there's a lot of bureaucracy, the deal cycles are really long. Um, if you don't have backing and money, it's really hard to start up a business in the healthcare industry. And that's what we were facing. So we kind of had to make a decision to go, well, why don't we take what we know and just try to go win whatever business we can, right? And it'll be, you know, it's like we have our main vision we want to do here, and then we'll just leverage our, our skills and experience to win other gigs. And so for about two years, that's what we started to do, is we started to take any business we can get our hands on. So we won some state, state of California bids, for example, um, in our early years. We, you know, won some business in Boise. We had all kinds of walks of life type business. And it was great. We were starting to make money. One of the things I'll tell you that's really important as you're going through this phase of growing is you got to be able to wear a lot of hats. So I've got a financial background, but I, learned how, I had to learn how to market. I had to learn how to sell. I had to learn how to do operations. All these things that I could, you know, we could go out and hire people and bring them in. We had to sort of build out our own way of doing it, you know, our own kind of creative ways. Anything we didn't know, we had to learn. I'm not a huge technology guy myself as far as having a technology background, but I love technology and I knew it enough so that I could talk to talk to a CIO, for example. So these are all things that you have to do as you're growing and getting bigger. And so we're at a point now where things are getting more complicated, you know. So here in Sacramento, for example, we have two of us. You know, it's me and then my lead engineer, Sam Kerr, who's brilliant. But the projects are getting more complicated, and I need more talent. So now we're at a point where it's like, what do we do? Do we hire somebody in Sacramento? Do we hire in Boise? And we're looking at Salt Lake City. We're looking at Dallas. It's kind of like, I don't have much business coming from Sacramento. So why would I... You know, why would I start up more here in SAC? You know, more of the business was coming from like Texas in the Midwest. So the initial thought was Dallas. Everybody was Texas, Texas, Texas. Now, mind you, at this time, I've been introduced to the Greater Sacramento Economic Council and Barry Broom and all these guys where, you know, California's the place to be, Sacramento's the place to be. So I'm kind of like, okay, well, I'm down. You know, like, let's, let's see what we can do here, you know? And I didn't win any business. You know, it was like I couldn't get anything locally, which is what I really needed. 
right? But what I did find was talent. I couldn't believe the engineers and the computer science people. I was able to get early on. You know, I ran into some really, really technical projects where I needed some really, really sharp, innovative people. And that's what I found here. So I had a couple guys in Salt Lake, a couple guys in Dallas, but my guys here were running circles around everybody. And the more research I did, the more I realized that, like, you know, there's a, there's a whole wealth of talent. So we'd, we'd go to, like, Sacramento State University's recruiting, you know, event, and I remember kids would be coming up and it'd be like, you guys are here? You're actually here? You're not like the, you know, satellite regional, you know, uh, version of this company or that company. I was like, yeah, we're here. This is, this is us. And so I, what we realized is that people were really excited that, you know, there was a technology firm, and there's a few, but not a ton, that, that it was, this stuff was happening here. And what I realized was that I had people that were either thinking about moving to the Bay Area or even people in the Bay Area that were thinking about moving to Sacramento that were really incredibly excited about the potential to live here, um, you know, for all the reasons that we live here, right? It's a great place. You know, it's not cheap anymore, but, it, you know, it's still cheaper than the Bay Area. You still have the outdoors, all these things. So we were able to tap into that and find around eight people initially that were just fantastic. Like one or two of them are world-class people as far as cloud technology and really understanding it, how to build it, how to integrate it. And they came through time and time again. I look at a few key points in our careers at, at this firm. It's like breakthrough moments. That was a breakthrough moment for us, right? Was having that talent at the right time, at the right place. And they were able to, to, to solve problems to the extent where we became an industry expert. So today, 90% of my business comes from financial services, from banks, mortgage organizations, and insurance. We didn't always start out that way, but we figured it out, right? And we figured it out strategically, and we figured it out technically. So all of a sudden now, we're known as industry experts in banking or in wealth management as far as digital transformation. And the way these things work is that there's a lot of referrals and leads, so we found a way to leverage the channel we had to keep bringing more leads and more business to us. So this was like this, the part where I call moving from the struggle to finding our way, right? So we found our way. We, we started in healthcare. We still loved healthcare. We still loved the idea of leveraging technology to save lives, but now we were leveraging technology to drive business outcomes. And it carried over nicely. And it's been a key to like this growth phase that we have. At some point, I'm looking at, wow, I'm at 20 people and I need to get to like 75 people. How do I do that in a year and a half without funding, right? And so at some point we had to go get funding and we had to go through that. So despite that early success, you go to banks and the banks were like, put your house as collateral. Put your house as collateral. Put your house as collateral. So I'm like, okay. So you put your house down as collateral, right? And you get like these small loans and they kind of get you this far and you think it's going to be enough, but it's not enough, right? And then you need real funding and you got to decide how you're going to go about doing that. And so that's where we, the last year is we've been in this process of finding the right type of investor. And, you know, we wanted an investor that aligned with our values, that aligned with the things that we're trying to do, the vision of the firm, uh, and then also getting a good deal. And so after doing research and, like, talking to different companies, having enough success and having the right financials, what we were able to do is secure funding from Salesforce Ventures. 
And right now, 80% of the technology solutions we build are on the Salesforce platform. So it just happened to be very synergistic for us. Um, and the funding was very timely in that we were growing fast, we were hiring people, we had a small office space, and then we had to you know, move into bigger office spaces. We were piled up on top of each other. And so the funding came, you know, I, it's not the, when the funding came, it's when you know that the funding's going to come, right? So as soon as you have that assurance, you know, the deal is signed, the funding came like eight months later, but the minute that you know it, like I don't have to give up my house, right? I can, I can salvage whatever little of my 401k was left. Um, just that confidence, a lot of it's just confidence, knowing that you can go for it, right? And that's kind of where we're at now. We, we secured that, that deal, we have the funding, and we're still in a mode of being conservative and going, wow, we have this money, do we go for it? You know, I'm, I've, if you go out on our website, all my open recs right now are for salespeople, right? My sales VP wants eight salespeople. Eight salespeople, very expensive, right? And, and the return on those eight salespeople is gonna come nine months from the day I hire them. I'm still feeling nervous about it. I'm still, we're literally battling today about what should the base be? What should the quota be? What should the commission be? Why do you need eight people? Can't you just do four? And she finally goes, what the hell did you get the money for? Right? It was to grow. It was to, to go and, and bust ahead. And so I've had to go through my own, you know, sort of process of like taking risks. You know, I took a risk back when, and now we were so, somewhat successful. We're faced with all the same challenges that we were in the very beginning. I'm looking at the financials going, we make one or two wrong moves, it's over. Like, it's literally that fragile. Like, we're not, the, you know, it's not like we're there. Like, holy cow, you know, let's go celebrate. Things are as competitive as all hell. My competition is huge. So I compete against really, really big firms. My smallest competitor is a $760 million company. It's my smallest competitor, right? And we're still tiny. We're barely hit 100 people, right? We're barely approaching around 15 million, and I've got these giants I'm competing with and competing against. So the funding is essential um, for us to you know, look better, build capabilities, do all those things. But a couple wrong moves, and we, I can go right back to where I was, you know? And it's, it's that fragile, so you have to be very strategic about what you do. The financial piece of it's really, really important. As far as understanding the numbers, that cash flow thing is critical, right? At what point, you know, are you gonna run out of cash? Or what can you do to stretch things out a bit? What can you do with your accounts receivable, with your accounts payable? What can you do with credit? What can you do to be creative, to keep this thing alive so that you don't die, right? You know, you have to, you have to keep your head above water because you know you have something special. You know it. And that's the other thing, when we talk about finding our way, I think the most special thing for me with this company, you know, the, the money stuff is, is great. Don't get me wrong. Like, you know, it's all about making money and that's, that's awesome. But I spent my career at a company that laid off probably over 50,000 people. And I had to lay off people myself. Um, and it sucks. And then I got laid off. And all I remember during this career was like firing, firing, firing. And there was no hiring. You know, and I'd go back to my alma mater at Cal Poly, and, you know, and, and there'd be people recruiting and hiring people. And we're just, I'm just like, wow, it'd be awesome one day to come back and like give back and recruit and give people opportunities, give people the chance to develop. So that's been the most rewarding part about this thing is hiring people, 
We have some really, really smart, talented people at this company, and a lot of them come from very unorthodox backgrounds. We have vets that did not know technology, and now through a program called VetForce, they're working for us, and they're doing amazing things. We have people that came from the fast food industry that don't have college backgrounds, and they went through code camps right, to develop technical skills to transform their careers. They're all closet nerds, you know, and they didn't know it. And they had an opportunity to find it, find their way, and we were there to give them an opportunity. And it's been fantastic watching these people grow. Um, our leadership team, 75% of our leadership team is women. And it's been that way from the very beginning. We didn't go do some corporate edict to go make this happen. This is the way we were born from the very beginning, right? And they've been badass. They've, they've been instrumental for our business. So these are all things that um, I'm really proud of. But more importantly, I get to work with these people every day. It's really exciting. You know, as you're up against the big competition, you have to ask yourself, what do I have that they don't have? Right? Obviously, they know banking. Obviously, they know technology. Obviously, they got the crazy brand, you know, and they can just get instant credibility. My battle is always I'm looking at the CIO, and it's like, I like you, but, and the but is if I hire you and you fail, I get fired. If I hire the big lousy firm and they fail, doesn't matter. I keep my job. We can sue them. You only have a house. Your house isn't even that special. I've seen it. I put it on Zillow. It's like, <laughs> it's worth like $300,000. Joking aside, this is something I'm up against constantly. But what do we have that those guys don't have? Um, we have culture, right? We have a special group of people that enjoy their work. They care about each other. They care about what they're doing, right? They have values that are very aligned with what the values are from the very top. Uh, we have a common vision, and this is how we're going to win. This is how we're going to persevere through all these trials and tribulations that we're going to continue to face, right? This is just chapter three, and there's going to be a chapter four, there's going to be a chapter five. And the journey is incredible. You know, you have all the battle scars and all those things, but at the end of the day, you've actually built this thing that's really special. You've given these people these opportunities. Right? And I'm hoping that in the end, whatever the outcome is, I don't know what the end game is, that some of these guys, gals, go start their own companies. They go do amazing things. Um, and that's been fun for me. You know, and that's part of uh, you know, my give back. And you know, I'm, I'm, once again, I'm honored to be here to tell you guys a story. I haven't told a story um, like this before. So I appreciate you guys listening. And, and I know it's been kind of long, but uh, I think we open it up for questions and stuff. All right, first question. Raise your hand, please. Go. Um, how'd you get over the utilization challenge? From a services perspective? Yes. We haven't. Um, I thought we had. So what we did initially, right, is we just had, we had people working long hours, and I just couldn't afford to hire more people. So I would jump in, you know, people would jump in, you know, wherever they could, we might augment it with a contractor right here and there. So that, that, that was those days. And then when business started to come in and I could hire, I couldn't keep up with demand, right? And it actually came to a point where I had to, you know, tell a few clients like, hey, we can't handle the business right now. You had to walk away. And that's really hard to do. Um, this year, it's been the opposite. So we, you know, we, we got the funding, we started to staff up, you know, get to like 50, 60, 70, 80 people, and all of a sudden my deal cycles got longer. So we got back into healthcare, for example. So I've been losing money for four straight months. 
right? And the only thing that's allowing me to survive that is the previous reserves that we had and the funding from Salesforce, right, between those two things. So we haven't figured it out. Um, I need some math, smart mathematical guy to build me some crazy algorithm or something to help me figure out this supply and demand thing. Or Einstein. Or Einstein. We're getting better at it, yeah. but I don't, I don't have a, you know, a full disclosure, I don't have a solution to the, to the challenge. It's tough, right? We're, we're looking at some different things, you know, that we might do as far as, like, different contract vehicles with the client to get creative with billing, you know, and, like, guaranteed cash kind of thing. Um, but it's work in progress. Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, can you talk a little more about that uh, sales, hiring salespeople challenge that you mentioned? Uh, I'm facing kind of a similar thing, and I'd like to know more about your thought process of it. Yeah. You, know, you want to grow, so you should hire. But. Yeah, I think the, the biggest challenge I have is that the really good experienced ones that are like what I call instant offense are want a high base, you know, and, and they want the, you know, the full, what they call on-target earnings north of like $300,000, right? And that's, that's challenging. Whereas everything we've ever done from the beginning of our time is we haven't gone out and hired all-stars, right? We developed people. You know what I mean? We hired people from different backgrounds. You know, not your superstar Stanford MBA. You know, we just don't have that profile. So now the battle I'm in with my sales leader is, you know, and if I was her, I'd want the all-stars too, right? Because you got to ramp them up and it takes six months to train people. So that's, that's the battle that we're in. Whereas I'm more of the opinion of let's develop somebody, right? Let's start with more of a inside sales type of emotion and have it have those guys graduate and become more of that like senior account manager kind of thing. I don't know if that answers your question, but that's that's the type of battles that, that we're dealing with. Well, yeah. Go ahead. Um, you mentioned uh, when you're going uh, up with a, with a big company and you're a little guy, I mean, not that little, but, you know, yeah. and you've got all these competitors who are also going for the same big company. You mentioned culture. Um, and I agree with you, but it's very difficult as a small startup to present yourself in the same light as you know a big company that's doing you know hundred million dollars a year and, and you're like this big, they're this big. Agreed. Um, and I don't know, I I haven't used the culture angle yet, but can you yeah. expand upon all at all how you've been able to convince sure. large organizations to go with a small startup over? embedded yeah yeah it's a a great question part of what helps is when you target a customer base that you think would resonate with who you are so I mentioned a lot of our business comes from the Midwest right we don't have a lot of business in New York I don't have a ton of business in San Francisco I don't have a ton of business in LA hell I don't even have a lot of business in Sacramento why is why the Midwest we're in Sacramento my business partner is in Boise so I have a team here and in Boise they like us Right? They, they think of us differently than they would think of our competition, which is based out of New York. Most all of them are. Right? The New York guys show up in suits. They have their PowerPoint presentations. We show up a little differently. We talk about different things. We are very transparent about our culture and who we are. We share our values, and it works, you know, because the Midwest is just different. Midwest 
those things resonate. Is that approach going to work with a bank out of New York? I don't think so. You know what I mean? So we have to change our... our so you kind of avoid the bank out of New York. We have been. Yeah. We have been. But what happens is as you have success, the reality is if you're successful with banks... Now I have that in my, you know, right. we have that. Now I have strong customer reference stories and referrals of real banks. You know, they're not little podunk. It may be a podunk town, but it's not a little podunk bank, right? We're talking billions of assets under management. So you have to be smart about, like, the segment that you choose or the customer. You do your research. You do your LinkedIn. You do your Google searches, and you find out the CEO's, of, you know, background as a farmer, Right, for example, and it's like, okay, well, my my co-founder and president owns a farm, comes from a farming background. It's going to connect. You know what I mean? So it's just doing those those next level of research, and then having good stories to tell and good content to share. Right, when you are in that vehicle and you have that opportunity with that CIO or that C-suite team. You know what I mean? Like you can talk to it, but it's nice if you put a little bit of extra time into the content. And then social media has been big for us lately too. I didn't think that the CIOs or the C-level people cared that much about who we are, but then you find out as you're having drinks and you've won the deal, like, oh yeah, I saw that post you did. You know, or or I saw that thing on your website, and it's like, wow, they are checking you out, right? They are doing all their due diligence and looking at all those things, right, in your background. So, so it's good to have all that stuff uh, show up. So, love the honesty. It's really refreshing. It's just all the challenges. Really appreciate that. Um, do you have um, like regular reoccurring? income or is everything project-based or bid-based or most of it's project-based it's one of the challenges is it the question that this gentleman asked about you know utilization it's one of our biggest challenges is we're very project dependent now we have a few products that we built right i have a sub-brand called zen lab where the original concept was i had these really creative talented technical people and they didn't have an outlet to exercise those muscles sometimes. Because you can only build what the client wants and sometimes it's not that exciting. So I gave him this outlet and I said, hey, take your ideas and if you if you think that something that there's something there that our clients will be interested in and they like, I'll fund it. Right? You have to build it and I will have it clear through security, I'll package it up and we'll put it as a product. I will do all that for you. I'll even cut you in on the sales. So I have Developers that have now built three products, and they actually get a percentage of the of the revenue from that. So now it's turned into something bigger, right? Something that started organically as more of an employee engagement type of thing uh, has turned into something more strategic, where I am moving towards more of a subscription-based revenue, for example. Um, and then I am working on, you know, as I mentioned earlier, some creative ways to get more of that recurring revenue. But it's something I haven't solved. It's tricky. So you received funding from Salesforce Ventures. Did you receive any funding from here or locally? Yeah. No, I, I didn't. Um, we had become big enough here that I think there was only one or two options. You know that because we we moved beyond that startup venture phase kind of thing and into more of that growth phase. So we needed a larger, you know, sum of money. So it was. 
private equity, right? And then there was Salesforce Ventures. And I heard nightmares about private equity. I'm sure there's some good private equity firms, but the stuff I investigated and what I heard was that they really want to take a controlling stake in your company or they really want to play a big role in shaping and steering you, right? And I wasn't ready to have another boss just yet. You know, maybe down the road, but right now I'm still enjoying making autonomous decisions where my only bosses are my people. Um, and so I knew that the Salesforce Ventures round was going to be strategic, but it wasn't going to be too overly imposing. Uh, you know, they're global, so it's it wasn't really a big deal. Yeah. Um, you know, if anything, they're thinking about having, uh, opening an office here, right, because they have so many employees in San Francisco that are having trouble with the local economy there as far as housing. So they actually met with Barry's team not too long ago. I'm not supposed to say that probably. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but anyway, they, you know, Sacramento to them is like, it's more of an extended. There's actually 75 Salesforce employees that live in Sacramento that, that commute or do the remote thing. So it's interesting. Thank you. Yeah. If there was some back here. More a comment on, on her with the small business stuff. In my experience, if you can show you're as efficient as they are. Unfortunately, with large corporations, they hire people with MBAs, and their whole job is, how can I make my tiny little world yeah. as efficient and cost-effective as possible, so they end up way more efficient and cost-effective. But small businesses end up more agile, so if you can check the box of being efficient, then usually it works better for them. Yeah. I would agree. There was a part of the story I was going to tell, and I forgot it, but the... the um, I mentioned there's a lot of trials and tribulations and scars and different things that happen, but one of the things that you do early on is you get enamored by the big brands, the big logos, look really exciting and sexy to you. You know, the Nikes and, oh, wow, look at that. There's Adidas, there's whoever. And we, um, I was a little like that. Like, I wanted the big brands in Sacramento. Like, I was looking at Rayleigh's and VSP and some of these big brands and like, wow, I'm here. And we never won any of them. Um, still haven't, which is interesting. But what I realized about these big brands is they can also be very painful to deal with in that enterprise you know, space. And early on, we, we won, or we thought we won an engagement with Nordstrom. And we were really, really excited to work with Nordstrom. And um, we, what they needed was an in-store, retail, kiosk, wayfinding type thing. So that when you walked in, um, your phone could talk to this beacon, and then you could have the phone as well as this like really cool digital experience to go find what it is that you were looking for, to go book an appointment with one of their, I forgot, the concierge service type people. So they'd outfit you with clothing and all this stuff. So we spent about $60,000 building this prototype demo app for them. And it was really sweet, really slick. And so we go to Seattle. We're in their innovation warehouse thing. We're showing them this thing, and they really like it. They're super excited. And so we're about to pack it up and take it, and they're like, oh, can you leave it here? You know, we want to keep playing around with it. Oh, sweet. Yeah, awesome. Um, an RFP type thing comes out. And we respond to the RFP, you know, we give our info, okay, great. 
you know, things go kind of quiet for a while. We have some conversations. And they're like, hey, you know, we have this big meeting with our board. We're going to show it to the Nordstrom board. You know, we're super excited. Can you go make these enhancements? So we're making enhancements to a prototype that we just spent $60,000 building. And now we're in for almost 100, right? Things go quiet again. Hey, board meeting went amazing, guys. This is amazing. Awesome, awesome, awesome. We're going on like five months of this back and forth. You know, and so I'm getting a little frustrated. Part of the app included a thing where you could log in and you could enter information. Somebody logged in, right, besides us. And we're like, who's this name that logged into the app? So we do our research on LinkedIn, and a guy from eBay Retail, you know, had logged into our application. Now, we have NDAs and all these things in place. Had logged into our app. You know, we're like, why is this guy logging in the app? I do my research. He's like the VP of engineering at eBay retail, right? So he's literally the competition. And these guys have been hanging on our stuff forever, right? So then we go back to Seattle, go to the store, and there's our app in one of the stores. You know, it's a little bit tweaked, but more or less it was our app. And this is this is early on. Early. We have we have barely any money, you know, we have what are we going to do? So, so we sued them, right? You know, I, a local Roseville attorney, um, I brought it to him, and he was like, I think you got something. And then my business partner was like, you know, I don't know, man, bad karma. We shouldn't go there. And then you know, I tell my attorney, I'm like, you know what, just forget it. He calls me up a, week, a couple weeks later. He's like, no, you, we need to go for this. Like, I think you got something here. So, you know, I send him all the stuff, and... Year 2014 was funded by Nordstrom. <laughs> it wasn't a ton of money, but it was, you know, it was nice. But the big brands, see, the big brands want to take the little guy and they don't care about him. So what's the key lesson learned in that story? differently you know it's it's uh i think it's i think it's you gotta have um better terms and conditions and things to protect you you know when these situations come up we probably could have sued them for a lot more but we didn't actually have this as a product that was ours you know installed out there in the market right and so it was you know but it was nice to win that, that thing, or at least get a settlement. So, the, back on your original story, you mentioned that you kind of got started with the whole issue in Haiti. Yeah. Um, and then you went into banking and services. So, I'm kind of wondering what the leak was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, once you understand the technology, everything's about data. You know, and data transformation and how you integrate systems. Once you have those skills and you know how to do that, it's pretty easy to apply. Not easy, but it, it, the concept is very applicable. You know, whether you're talking to a state agency, whether you're talking to a bank. Earlier, I talked about wearing multiple hat, hats. One day I'd be a banker, and next day I was, you know, a guy that had experience in healthcare in the field. You know, whatever it takes. Do you know what I mean? Like whatever it takes to win whatever you can when you need business. You know, you have to pay for people and you gotta build up your capabilities. That's just kind of the way it was. The beauty now is now that we're doing better, we're able to go back to that work we were doing when we started, right? So we're doing a ton of nonprofit work. We've got five different projects going um, that we're funding ourselves. Um, three of them are locally here in Sacramento. One's a dog rescue, one's a um, homeless shelter, 
right? And these are things that we, you know, it's part of my own people um, giving back, and then we're, we're building out the infrastructure for these organizations that are really struggling with things like fundraising, and most of these nonprofits don't have IT staff, right? They, they, they need help. Um, Salesforce gives them 10 free licenses, right? Well, they get the licenses, and they don't know what to do with the licenses. They don't know how to use them, right? And then t- typically it's more complicated than just getting, you know, one application. You know, they've got these other funding systems and different things that all have to tie together. They're not the most technology savvy. So they need somebody like us to help, you know, transform all that and bring it together. So it's, it's cool stuff we're doing. When the fires happened um, just recently, uh, we built a... You know, custom portal community app right away to match supply and demand. So anybody that needed anything um, right away, you know, we had donors and suppliers matched up instantaneously. So these are cool things that we're able to do now that we're in a better position. Um, but we're doing it because we care and I have people that care and they're building it in their own time and they're, they're coming up with ideas constantly. So it's going to be something that's going to be fun for us as we get more successful. Right. Keep keep that spirit going. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, outside of Salesforce, are there any other tools that you guys use internally? Yeah, yeah, we're doing uh, so we're doing a lot of custom full stack type stuff, and then some AWS stuff is popping up. Yeah. Um, and then some of the analytics, you know, stuff's also popping up. Some of the AI, right? So those are all areas that that are is there taking a off. Is you use for the analytics? It's it's mostly been Salesforce, but then MuleSoft. I don't know if you're familiar with MuleSoft. Yeah, MuleSoft is to be a big part of what we do, yeah. which was just bought by Salesforce. So it's, <laughs> Everything's getting bought by Salesforce. So I don't mean. Do you use any tools like Zapier or Datanize or anything? For uh, Zapier we've used. Um, not the other one you just mentioned. Datanize. Yeah. yeah I, I, it's not familiar, but yeah. you never know. You talk to my guys. Especially when you go to a website and you see what kind of like softwares they're using on their site. So Got it. Talk to them like, oh, okay, we know you use Zendesk, or we know you use I see. software. For Got it. Yeah. But we're we're that's an interesting question you asked though because as we we just put together like our five year plan and what we want to do, and part of that five year plan, you know, is, is all about diversification and expanding, adding more technology to the you know to the arsenal and doing some different things. Because you never know what's going to happen, right? Yeah. You know, Salesforce is hot now. Oh, is, yeah. it, is it going to be hot in five years, ten years? You know, I think so. I think so too. <laughs> um, but now that I'm responsible for a hundred people, it's like it's a different. You know, I don't want to be that guy that is was so in love with something, you know, and didn't see something coming. It's like one of my biggest fears and paranoias. You know, once you have all these people it's like you need we need to be thinking ahead and strategically constantly so so we are always evaluating new stuff go ahead um did you actually this is right along with the same topic about being kind of compared to salesforce taking on a strategic investor like salesforce do you feel that painted you into a box at all or you know not really um it's you would think Right. The you always think. Yeah, it's it's. Uh, I knew that they here. Okay, sure. Like any any venture firm, you know they this is and this isn't. By the way, this is just a, a, a separate entity they created to fund. And usually they end up buying the companies they fund. I think half the time. Um, we you know they care about their money, but they more care about us. Um, you know. 
growing and strategically aligning with what they're doing, which is not going to change for us over the next three years, right? And they don't look at an investment past three years. You know, they're thinking in three years there'll be something that happens, right? Um, so I'm not worried about it. I'd be more worried if it was a private equity firm, right? What happens to companies in our space often is they get bought by a bigger company, and the bigger companies usually a what they call a global global a global SI system integrator, like Accenture, for example, and then they kill that company's culture. That company is never the same again, right? And so. If you go the private equity route, that's the route they're going to push you in. And I knew with Salesforce, they weren't going to push me in that route. Interesting. So kind of piggybacking on both the questions, though, so you talk about your strategy. From a leadership perspective, you're, you, you want to grow the company, but you also want to keep the culture, and you want to take care of the employees, and you've got certain investors. I mean, what's your, what's your from... You know, entrepreneurial standpoint, what's your kind of self-strategy there to, sure. to allow for that time, right? You only have so much time in the day, but, like, what kind of processes do you try to put in place to be able to kind of detach yeah. and, and then look look at the whole big picture? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. In fact, that's been, like, you know, one of the biggest negative criti- critical remarks, you know, about me, right, is he's too close to everything, he's too in the weeds, you know, not as strategic as you need to be. What's your vision for the future? Um, and so we've been so busy trying to get to here that just recently I've been able to pivot. So this is part of my own development is to figure out, you know, how do I become more of that person? You know, who do I need to talk to? What research do I need to do? What, what do I need to learn, right, to get to that next level um, so that I am thinking two or three years or two or three steps ahead of where the market is and where things are going. So right now, the big focus has been, you know, the culture, right? Because I'm up against really big competition, and I know that they're poaching my people right and left. My guys get recruited like you wouldn't believe. It's insane. Slalom probably wants to hire my entire Sacramento team and put them on the public sector, put them on state gigs, and they'd be miserable, by the way. but, but how do I defend against that? It's the culture piece, right? So while I'm thinking you know, out, the reality is, is like I'm in a dogfight today as we speak you know, with, with very large competitors. I'm spending a lot of money. You know what I mean? I feel like we need to get one level up from where we're at for us to truly start to think about, like, what, okay, what next? You know what I mean? We're doing some of the incubation I mentioned earlier. We're doing some some product type stuff. Um, we're doing some diversification. You know, with exploring different technologies, exploring different industries. Um, but right now, the the runway looks really good ahead of us. If we if we get too excited by shiny things here and there and lose focus, uh, we could we could derail pretty fast. You know what I mean? So that's like the the balance. I, I, I don't know if I answered your question, but this is my this is my daily life. Is you know, ninety percent of it is is just trying to meet the plan that we have in front of us, and then occasionally I get time to think about where is this company going, you know, where, where do we want to go strategically, kind of thing. And so we we assign numbers to things, we defined our vision, mission, and values, right? Beyond that, anybody's guess. Yeah. Uh, how long is the runway? So we got the funding. Is it like, is it like two years? 
thinking or it looks like two years right now it's funny because when the money when I first got it I was like wow what are we going to do with all this money and sales you know change that conversation really fast um, people are expensive it's hard to get it's hard to get talent you know ready made talent is very expensive so resources are being here oh, oh, oh please no yeah. go ahead so resources are your biggest challenge at this point to, to expand? Um, yes, yeah. I mean, resources, definitely. Um, today it's sales, and then when sales start coming in, it's going to be back to you know the technical people. So that'll be a constant balance. But the, the biggest challenge is the balance. The question earlier was really good. It's, it's the continual tug of war between supply and demand and having enough people and enough capital Right to keep up with that, but not having too much, so that I'm burning cash. Right, it's a we have to get more strategic about it. We're just not there yet. Right, there's some like, great ideas we have. There's some things we're doing, but we're just not there. Um, whereas, I've been able to develop resources. You know what I mean? If I had ten million dollars, I would start some awesome intern program, develop people, and create like a hundred more jobs. Right? I mean, it would be amazing, but we're just not there. You know what I mean? But that's how you build talent. You know what I mean? And you build it organically. You build it through the firm. Um, and occasionally you'll get, you'll get some superstars that you need that are ready-made. But I've always found that like having somebody progress through the company is just a, a better way to go. I think she had a question. Sorry. Um, it sounds like you've got a real talent for building people of, uh, as much as you have culture as well, that's something that's uh, rare these days in companies, of course. Um, do you have government contracts at all? You mean like as part of our, our, our part of our revenue challenge? We did. Um, it was miserable. Yeah. We almost went under. Okay. With it. Um, yeah. It's really hard. Then aside from that, have you thought about going into like education or some kind of like... Um, I don't want to say maker space, but some kind of collab space for people that are the individual full stack developers and stuff like that, where you're not you're not funding the projects, perhaps, but you're maybe a hub for those and maybe a small share of it for longevity. Yeah, uh, I think it's a great idea. Yeah, absolutely. We haven't explored it a ton. We have recruited and hired people from code camps. Mm-hmm. Um, we've done the intern programs from there where you know they're doing side projects for us. Some of these nonprofit projects, for example, when the client's not paying, which they're not, it's, it's easier for me to take junior people or unproven people and leverage them and connect them to, to these nonprofit projects. Haney, have you heard of the Haney's organization? So he's, they're starting up something for vets around technology right now. Um, we just talked last week. So that should be really interesting to see how that grows. And what I told them is, um, as, as you, you know, we can help with some of the training or whatever, but as these guys get ready to, you know, become, make this their career, they can get experience with us on these, these nonprofit projects, right, where you're allowed to mess up. Yeah. You know what I mean? You're allowed to not be the most professional guy in the world because, again, clients are paying for it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Uh, we'll still get the job done, and we'll do a great job, yeah. but it's a great practice round, you know, yes. and it's real-life stuff. Right. Yeah. Um, 
um, still in the same vein of like talent development, culture, stuff like that. Um, as you are bringing in people that maybe have those transferable skills from different industries, what are you looking for? Obviously, besides someone that's in alignment with the culture and the attitude you're looking for, but what are those transferable skills you are focusing on that you find most valuable that you can't just like teach someone? Yeah, some of it is uh, it's that engineering capacity to solve problems. So much of the learning material right now is online, right, where there's communities that are sharing it, you know, and then they're posting it, that sometimes people need someone to tell them the answer, right, or they have to go ask somebody constantly. And, you know, when we do these intern programs, the ones that are the most successful are just, they're constantly challenging themselves to find the answer, right? Why does it work like this? Oh, I hit a roadblock. Okay. Am I done? Am I going to like, okay, put it down and go ask like five people now and I'm stuck? Or do they, are they resilient? And do they leverage the resources that are available to them? Uh, are they creative, right? Those are the people that we're looking for. Those are people that have been great for us. Um, our our uh, number two solutions architect in the entire firm worked at a pizza kitchen for 12 years of his life. He was the pizza kitchen manager. And... Um, we used to go across the street from our office to the pizza kitchen and work at the bar sometimes because, I don't know, why not? Why not work at the bar? And so uh, the bartender told us, like, hey, you know, I know somebody wants to work for you guys. And we were like, cool, bring them on. And we were really small, you know? We thought it was kind of like, okay, who's this person? So here comes Sean Murray, pizza kitchen, got the apron, napkins, his apron's all dirty. Oh, hi, I'm Sean, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, yeah, I really love Salesforce. You know, I just got my uh, first certification and this and that. And we're like, listen to him. Okay, interesting. We said, well, go get two more certifications and we'll talk. Well, a week later, he comes back. Two certifications. You know, we're just like, okay. We hired him as like an interim thing, like didn't spend a lot of money, right? And he was doing work on his side. He was killing it. Then he ended up working for us full time. Now he's like a, he's the equivalent of like a, a senior solutions architect. This is a guy that worked in a pizza kitchen for 12 years. You know what I mean? No, no technical background, college degree, any of that stuff. Loves to solve problems, right? Loves technology. Loves customer success. Customers love this guy. They have no idea what his background is. In fact, if they knew, I don't know if they could keep him on. You know, because sometimes they have weird requirements and stuff like that. So it's super interesting, you know, who comes through in the end. Questions? Okay, I'll, we're about time anyway, so I'll close the forum. Last question. Um, so we talked a little bit about your personal journey, having to learn someone. Dive a little more deeper into your how you learn personally. If you have a mentor network that you work with, if it's books that you shout out to people that they might you, you might recommend to them, um, how do you go about learning? Constantly learning to do the next thing. Yeah, it's a it's a great question. Um, you know, in the beginning, there was less of this. You would think I would need, I would have wanted or needed more then, and it was just more the excitement, the energy, the survival. But as we've gotten larger and you're at a point where you have a staff, an organization chart, and managers, and just people, stuff, drama, is now I'm 
starting to read books that people, you know, are always talking about reading. Like we just wrote, read first one we did as a staff is the five dysfunctions of a team, which I've heard about forever. You know, I'm like, how did you not read this book already? So we read it because we were apparently pretty dysfunctional. <laughs> and it was hugely helpful. I, c- I couldn't even believe how helpful it was um, as far as immediate instant impact. Like, you know, it was like homework I gave people. And it's a really easy read, by the way. It's like you can read it in a day. And we had our first like major leadership offsite, and everyone talked about what they learned and how dysfunctional we were, and we used it as a tool to get better. You know, and one of the one of the great learnings out of there was they talk about this concept of a first team and a second team. And what the book says is your first team is this this leadership staff, this leadership. Second team is everybody else. And so we were operating as if the first team, not me as much, because they're my first team, but they were operating as if their first team was their team. So my sales leader's first team was their sales team. The marketing leader's first team was the marketing team. And they were getting into fights and all these things. And so this was a really interesting concept to go, no, this is the team right here, right? This is the wall. You know, this is the circle. And everybody outside, they matter, but they don't matter as much as this group here. It's just one book. Um, what was that book title? Five Dysfunctions of a Team. It's actually really entertaining. He, he's written a few, I guess. Um, I'm, I'm listening to Salesforce a lot. So a lot of what we model our firm, not, not everything, but the way Salesforce does things is pretty interesting. I don't know how much you guys follow them or see what they're doing out there, but CEO's pretty vocal about... Um, company, a strategic corporation like that caring, you know, about what goes on in the world and making a difference, you know, and and giving back. So we've started that way from the very, very beginning. And so we align really well, going back to even the the investment money, we align really well with that. Um, So it's, I'm paying attention to companies that are actually putting their money where their mouth is, you know, they're actually like doing something. They're not just talking about it, you know, their actions. So again, 75% of my leadership team is women. I didn't, we didn't do that by design. That's it. That's what, that's what happened. That's the organic thing that happened, right? It's not, it's not some big deal. You know what I mean? People give back at our company. It's not some huge deal. It's what we do in our everyday behaviors. It's what we care about. It's the values of the firm. To me, it's very intuitive, but I guess it's a big deal for other companies. Maybe they're bigger, you know what I mean, where they have more people and maybe all run into a conflict. But right now, it's like everybody's very aligned, you know what I mean, on what we want to do when it comes to equality, inclusivity, um, philanthropy, sustainability, right? We have uh, something called Zen Earth. It's, It's organic. You know, the guys came up with it. You know, they thought we were being inefficient. They didn't like all the garbage all over the place. They didn't like the recycling, and so they, on their own, they you know they built it and they created it out, created a, a program for it. Um, I know it's a long answer to your question, but th- these are things that we're doing that I'm tapping into the values of people. You know what I mean? And I'm finding that the values of the company, you know, really really matter. And people are watching what I do, you know, and how I act and what I say. <clears throat> And it wasn't as big of a deal maybe a while, uh, earlier, you know, when we were smaller. But now that we're bigger, you know, things are becoming more intense, you know, and people are paying attention 
more and more, right? And, and Salesforce is doing a lot when it comes to, um, you know, the not just the, the economy and jobs, but like Mark Benioff is, he's pretty vocal, right? You know, and so I'm reading his latest book right now, and he tells a really interesting story about, I guess, the state of Indiana passed this gay marriage law, and, and they have a lot of people in Indiana in that office. And he got a call from one of the employees in the office and was like, do you know what's going on here? You know, the guy you just shook hands with to create this economic deal to build this office just passed a law that, you know, to ban gay marriage and your employees are like freaking out about it. So this was like the first time he had to do something, right? Like he was in a position as a corporate leader to do something socially. And he could have just kind of taken the high road and been like, well, you know, it's not what we do. But he went out and he was vocal about it. And he you know, tweeted about it and a bunch of other companies got involved. They reversed the law, right? So it's, it's super fascinating to me. I think it's awesome. So um, I'm paying attention to that. Companies that care, companies that are, you know, not just trying to hit the bottom line, but what are they doing that really makes an impact? Um, and I think that's one of the most exciting things about being successful. We're not, again, we're not there yet. But when we get there, you know, when you have more money, right? When you have more opportunity, what can you do to make a difference? You know, about things that everybody in the company cares about that maybe in your local community is, is a big need. You know, so those are, those are awesome things to be able to do. Um, but we have to stay competitive. That's the bottom line. All right. Thank you.